why is that important for them to look at uh, cutting entitlements? And do you think Congress will ever take a look at it? At some point, crisis will force them to. I mean, the reality is, uh, why does Warren Buffett need a Social Security check? Um, Can we means test this for higher income people? Can we uh, realign Social Security investments for people who aren't near retirement age? Had we done what George W. Bush wanted in 2005, where Social Security essentially became a 401k program presided over by the federal government, uh, we would not be in in the crisis we're headed into. And people who were under 40 at the time would be headed towards retirement age with a really big uh, cushion of money, more than what Social Security pays. The right needs to recognize George W. Bush's plan was the right way to go, and we're going to have to implement it uh, because we're not going to be able to afford to do anything else. Uh, At some point, bankruptcy forces tough decisions, and I would rather us avoid the bankruptcy before we get to those tough decisions. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. You know, there is so much going on in the world each and every day. And as a former talk radio host, choosing topics was always fun, and it was always a little bit challenging. But I'll tell you one thing, I never ran out of things to talk about. Uh, From the Speaker of the House race to the presidential primary to the war in Israel, there's a lot of big events happening that Americans are having to keep up with right now. Now, we always want to have guests come on and talk about these topics, and it just made sense today to have someone on who talks about it three hours a day, five days a week. Today's guest is a prominent American conservative political commentator, an author, and a radio talk show host who's made a significant impact in the world of conservative media. Born in Jackson, Louisiana, he's risen to national notoriety as a voice of reason and influence within the conservative movement. Now, throughout his career, he's been an advocate for limited government traditional conservative values, and the protection of constitutional rights. And he's also known for his willingness to engage in civil yet passionate debates on a variety of topics. He's worked uh, for Red State, serving as the editor-in-chief and chief executive. He's also been a political contributor to Fox News and to CNN. He's authored several books, including Red State Uprising and Before You Wake, Life Lessons from a Father to His Children. He also serves as an Americans for Prosperity Advisory Council member. I want to welcome Eric Erickson, the host of the Eric Erickson Show, uh, today's podcast. Eric, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I we were doing some research. Monica always does some research, tries to find a fun fact, and I, I found this one. I didn't know this about you. You lived in Dubai when you were a boy. Yeah, yeah from when I was five in 1980, we moved over there. We moved back in 1990 when I was 15. Um, it was, I mean, how I grew up, it was it was a fun way to grow up. Every three months, our visa expired, so we had to go to a different country for a week. Um, when I was 11, my parents let me start flying around the world by myself, uh, getting back to Louisiana it was just, it was kind of a wild way to grow up, but uh, definitely kind of gave me a, an international perspective, I guess you could say. Yeah. How did, the, how do you think that shaped your view, both of America and, you know, maybe of the rest of the world? 
I, you know, in the 1980s, it was the peak of the Iran-Iraq war uh, when I was in uh, middle school and junior high. I remember uh, watching the oil platforms Iran would blow up uh, in the Middle East. So we, our school was three blocks, two blocks from the Persian Gulf and three, four stories. You could see the horizon and see the oil platforms being blown up, see the impact the American Navy had. My parents were the enlisted family, uh, enlisted host family, which meant that uh, when the Fifth Fleet would come into Dubai to the dry docks, at the time they were the only dry docks around for the Navy to use, we would have block parties for all the sailors. So had a very pro-America, pro-military uh, childhood growing up. I mean, they literally did keep us safe. Hezbollah, when I was a kid, tried to blow up my school. Um, and so showing, it, being an American and what it meant to be an American, remembering the times where my dad's Swedish and my mom would, would say, you need to tell people you're Swedish, not American, um, because they don't target Swedes, they target Americans. It, it, it definitely impacted me growing up uh, of what it means to be an American around the world and how a strong United States does bring peace. Yeah. Wow. That's, and I think it's something we talk about this on the show a lot. It's something that people who are born and raised in the United States and never leave, they, they don't have a good understanding of that, of how blessed we truly are uh, to be Americans and, and to live in this, this economy of abundance, if you will. But um, let me ask you on the speaker of the house race. Um, obviously this is something that maybe three or four weeks ago, we wouldn't have even expected was going to be something that was thrust upon uh, the Republican party or the house of representatives. What are your thoughts on the speaker of the house race? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> so look, I was not a Kevin McCarthy fan to begin with. I actually wanted Jim Jordan to begin with um, and supported the effort to block. You may McCarthy get your wish. Huh? You may get your well, wish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wasn't a fan of his, didn't want him, uh, appreciated the concessions that it took him to the right to get. But I thought uh, the timing of Gates's um, resolution was bad. Um, I thought it was bad because we're 40 days from another government shutdown, judging based on the final package, not the interim package. Uh, and we, I mean, we didn't even see this situation in Israel coming at the time. Uh, so I, it was the timing was wrong. It was always going to end that way. When Kevin McCarthy structured a deal to become speaker where any one member could make a motion to vacate the chair, it was always inevitable that this was going to happen. But the timing of it, I thought, was bad. Um, but even before current events. Now, if they can wrap it up and make Jordan speaker, uh, that'll be good. The problem, though, for poor Jim Jordan, if he becomes speaker, is now we're 30 days from a government shutdown. You've got a huge deal to negotiate for a final package, and you've got the Israeli situation, the Ukraine situation, uh, the border situation all rolled into one, um, really puts a huge burden on whoever the next speaker is. What do you think of this rule that allows one member to, to have a motion to vacate? You know, I I think when it's done like Matt Gates did it, it was clearly personal animosity towards Kevin McCarthy. It becomes unproductive um, when you have eight members of the GOP siding with all of the Democrats to oust the Republican speaker. That doesn't really chart for stability in the future. Um, Republicans tend to oust their speakers more than Democrats, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it's because of a petty personal grievance over policy. I think it's bad. Um, and the problem is you're going to get Republicans to want to gut the power to remove the speaker. And you may get stuck with a bad speaker you can't remove because of the, that boy who cried wolf mentality. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, what do you think the the longer term effects or are there negative effects or impacts on the Republicans just kind of from a brand perspective or as they go <laughs> yeah. into these negotiations? I mean, they, they, they look like a, a group of pygmy cannibals uh, who, who consume their own on a regular basis. And yeah. it, will the public want to entrust them to leadership? Keep in mind, Kevin McCarthy, when he was ousted, was the most popular national politician he had better polling than than Trump, McConnell, Schumer, Pelosi, Harris, or Biden. And the GOP had actually gotten stuff done in the House. And so then they oust him. It does make the GOP look like uh, an unstable element at a time we probably need some stability given foreign crises. And let me ask this question. I mean, it seems to me that it's easy to, you know, throw rocks at at the speaker, but it's, it's actually pretty hard to be speaker of the house, yeah. no matter where you're coming from. Right. Right. And you know, I, so I spoke to Congressman Chiproy, who's a dear friend of mine. We were talking about this and he said, conservatives who didn't want to give any grace to Kevin McCarthy to make deals are going to have to for Jim Jordan. And, and it'll be easier because they know he really is intrinsically one of them, but moderates and conservatives alike are going to have to give him some grace. We have a, we can only lose four seats or four votes it's a very slim majority. You've got to bring together a Republican Party that represents parts of liberal New York and California and conservative parts of Georgia and Alabama to come up with a coalition deal uh, where you can't force anyone to vote in a particular direction because they're accountable to their constituents, not to the speaker. It's going to be hard. Uh, it's not an enviable position for anyone. Uh, God bless Jim Jordan for wanting to give it a try. But conservatives in particular tend to be the ones who want more uh, towing the party line or, if you will, towing the ideological line. And they're going to have to give one of their own some grace because you're dealing with, I mean, liberal Republicans from New York, not just conservative from the South to have a big coalition. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult, I think, when you have all these different factions within, uh, you know, within the Republican Party to try and make them all okay enough to vote for a particular package is it's just a real tough deal whether it's jim jordan or kevin mccarthy a lot of herding cats yeah it sure is now on the funding bill that was passed at the end of september love to get your thoughts on that uh it it was passed to prevent a government shutdown what were your thoughts on that so here my problem with it was the conservatives were able to get a broad coalition of republicans the moderates the liberals the Main Street Republicans, the conservatives, the House Freedom Caucus all agreed that their starting position should be an 8% cut. Uh, so cut government 8%. Now, they were never going to get that from the Senate. But if that's their opening position, they might have been able to get no cuts at all or no growth at all. And they might have been able to get 1% cuts. They might have been able to cut something. When Matt Gates blew it all up by ousting the speaker, what it, what it amounted to was that that ends the negotiating position. Uh, you had these Republicans come out and say, look, um, there's no way I'm going to support this package. They renegotiated several times, and ultimately the deal they came up with that Matt Gates wanted as his excuse to oust the speaker was a deal with no cuts whatsoever, a slight growth in government for emergency funding, and that became the House's opening position. They they had a starter strong, a stronger starting position with a full coalition of conservatives and moderates to cut government that they couldn't get done. Um, I hope they can go back to that because there was consensus. Um, otherwise, I mean, it wasn't really the hill to die on because it was only for 45 days and it's going to be the final bill 
that really is what matters. And hopefully, if Jordan is speaker, he can build some institutional trust among the Republicans to still go for cuts. Remember, Jordan's the guy who kind of came up with the idea of sequestration uh, to cut government back when Obama was president. It was the first time we had real, real cuts, not cuts to future growth, but cuts to actual government. And we're going to need that at this point. Our national, the interest payments on the national debt are about to exceed our military budget. Yeah, it's it's at a crisis point, really. Uh, do you think that then we're at a at a worse position today with that with that funding bill and the government shutdown than we were before the ouster of Kevin McCarthy? Yeah, we're in a more precarious position because the runway is is now closer. McCarthy had a plan. And then he had 45 additional days to really redirect that plan. Now we've got about 30 days to redirect the plan. Uh, you're going to have a new speaker in charge. He's going to have to staff up very quickly. Uh, it puts the Senate in a better negotiating position, and that undermines the ability to reduce the government. Um, you know, look, I, my worldview is I, I'm an evangelical Christian, which is why I'm a conservative. I think we're all sinners. I want as few in charge of me as possible. Uh, and I, I want to slow the train down. And I, I don't see how you slow the train down now. They abandoned the 8% cuts for no cuts so they could blame McCarthy for a bad deal. They got the bad deal, and now they got 30 days. Uh, how does that help anybody? I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, uh, do you think if you had to bet, would you say we're going to get a spending bill passed before November 17th? I, my guess is no, um, I, but maybe it'll be a week-long shutdown. Um, since they got the military paid, uh, that's kind of what they were. The, they wanted to make sure they get the military paid, so the military's gotten paid. If you go, if you fund until November seventeenth, that's past the next pay period. So you could shut down the government for a week and negotiate before you start really messing up people's paychecks. That's probably what we're going to do, just because the speaker's going to be so new. And have to get his sea legs under him. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you think that uh, fiscal conservatives actually benefit from government shutdowns, or or not? Does the cause benefit? Yeah. I, look, I, I'm actually other than this government shutdown because there was no plan to it. It was just shut down for the sake of, sake of shutdown. I think that conservatives have in the past been unfairly blamed for shutdowns and for the uh, political fallout from shutdowns where Republicans really, no one went to the polls and said, I'm going to vote against the GOP because of a shutdown. They've always done fairly okay. Uh, they got to have a plan though. Like for example, to go back to sequestration, that big shutdown uh, Republic, the conservatives led by Jim Jordan, no less had a plan to do real world cuts they kept the government shut down until the Obama administration conceded to those cuts. If you do something like that, we need them. I mean, we're we're going to head into a situation within the next year where the interest payments on the debt consume the entirety of all of the revenue coming into Washington, D.C. We've got record high revenue right now of like $4.89 trillion, and we're rapidly headed to a point where all of that's going to go to interest. There will be nothing left to fund government unless we start making some real cuts. Yeah. The entitlements. I mean, you know, lawmakers are talking about budget cuts, but they're they're not really talking about cutting entitlements, which is about 70 percent of the budget. Right. Why, why is that important for them to look at uh, cutting entitlements? And do you think Congress will ever take a look at it? The, the, at some point, crisis will force them to. I mean, the reality is, uh, why does Warren Buffett need a Social Security check? Um, can we means test this for higher income people? Can we uh, realign Social Security investments for people who aren't near retirement age. 
had we done what George W. Bush wanted in 2005, where Social Security essentially became a 401k program presided over by the federal government, uh, we would not be in the in the crisis we're headed into. And people who were under 40 at the time would be headed towards retirement age with a really big uh, cushion of money, more than what Social Security pays. At some point, the right needs to recognize George W. Bush's plan was the right way to go, and we're going to have to implement it uh, because we're not going to be able to afford to do anything else. Uh, at some point, bankruptcy forces tough decisions, and I would rather us avoid the bankruptcy before we get to those tough decisions. Let me turn, uh, if I can, to the Republican primary. Um, I'd love to know, first of all, let, let's get your thoughts on the first two debates. Oh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I like so many of the candidates. I've never been a big Trump fan, although I, I acknowledge he's kind of the leader of the pack right now in the polling. But I, I do think that DeSantis and Haley have both had strong debate performances. Haley very clearly has benefited from the debates and from uh, so much of the campaign pivoting towards this national security issue with, with Israel. She's the only candidate right now with real upward momentum into the double digits. Fox and I think CNN both have her now in double digits in the polling, uh, which shows uh, she's getting up there. So it becomes a DeSantis-Haley-Trump fight, and only DeSantis and Haley are on the debate stage arguing with each other. So uh, who who didn't do well in those first two debates? I mean, who, who do you think – I mean, clearly for this thing to be – for for Donald Trump, I think to to not be the nominee, it's going to have to narrow down right. from the current number of candidates. Who who should consider getting out of the race after those first couple debates? I uh, most of the candidates. Uh, there there's no reason for Doug Burgum or Asa Hutchinson to be there. Uh, as much as I personally like Chris Christie, I, he's I, he doesn't appear to be getting any traction after these debates or uh, doing copious media appearances. I don't know what his fundraising is doing. Um, I, I really genuinely like Tim Scott. He's a fr- personal friend. Um, his campaign uh, or news reports today are that the super PAC is going to stop all of his ad buys, uh, which is devastating to his campaign. Uh, and I don't know how Mike Pence gets any traction with anyone. It, it's, it's tough. Ramaswamy has made a name for himself. I'm not a big fan of his, but he certainly has earned the right to be on a debate stage, uh, given his polling. And it just at this point seems like the field does need to consolidate. And I don't know why we continue to humor people like Asa Hutchinson and Doug Burgum to think that they're actual candidates when they're at like half a percent to a percent of the polling. And Burgum's got to try to buy his way onto a debate stage. It it does a disservice at this point as the race clearly is beginning to consolidate between Haley, DeSantis and Trump to have all the rest of them on stage. Yeah. So you think it's really uh, Haley and DeSantis are, are really yeah, the two? Yeah, and, and I view Ramaswamy as a proxy for Trump. Right. I don't think they made a secret of the fact that, that he kind of is operating in that way. Um, when you look at the polling, there are three people who are now in double digits uh, in the latest polling from Fox and CNN. That's Haley, that's DeSantis, and that's Trump. And Trump is over 50%, so it's still his. But if he's not going to be on the debate stage, let's just see a, a Haley-DeSantis debate. So so let's let's look down the road a, a few months, uh, right? We've got January. We've got caucuses and 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 primaries coming out. Um, what needs to happen between now and then for Donald Trump to not be the Republican nominee? You know, a confluence of events, and and they probably are external events. Whether it is uh, the the litigation against him or DeSantis, for example, in the past uh, couple of days made a name for himself rescuing people out of Israel. 
Uh, can he turn that into some momentum? Uh, we've got one more debate in Miami in November. Uh, will any of the candidates really have a moment to shine on that debate stage? There are still events in play that can shake up this race. I do look at the third quarter fundraising numbers, though. Donald Trump got less than $200,000 from individuals. Uh, that's actually not good for a presidential campaign to get less than $200,000 from individuals. Most of his money came from super PACs. And DeSantis got several million dollars, as did Nikki Haley, from individuals. Uh, those I individual millions of dollars come from voters. The super PAC money doesn't come from voters. So I do wonder if there are undercurrents that we're not seeing in the polling that maybe at the state level uh, will help DeSantis and Haley. And the DeSantis theory is very explicitly that they can win in Iowa. And if he wins in Iowa, it shows Trump is not inevitable and, and everybody shifts. I think that's too optimistic. I do think you've got to run a multi-state campaign. And the only person who has the money to do that right now is Donald Trump. So it's still hard for any of the other candidates to really get traction. Yeah, it would seem to me that even if you under that scenario, if let's say DeSantis won Iowa, but but Haley did really well or won New Hampshire, you still you still have two against Donald Trump in, right. in some ways, right? Yeah. Now, look, if if DeSantis wins and Haley wins and Trump doesn't win either of the first two, uh, then suddenly you've got two races where Mr. Inevitable is no longer inevitable. And that does begin to shake up the race. Right. But then you do head into South Carolina where Haley was the governor. If Trump wins there against the former governor and a former senator. Uh, so now you do have a real three-way race, and one of them has a, a lot of money, although most of it's going to lawyers, and he's got the big name ID. So it, it's, it still looks like we're cruising towards Trump unless they can shake it up in the next couple of months. All right, let me, uh, let me turn to free speech for a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously free speech is being limited on college campuses, social media. We, we see uh, folks not acting in the tradition of the First Amendment and in some cases literally violating the First Amendment with the government uh, infringing upon some of this speech. Why is this a problem? And, and, and what can be the effects of someone not being able to share their ideas and opinions in a free society? You know, it, let's let me pivot slightly towards COVID on this, uh, because a lot of opinions were put out in the media by the experts that turned out to be wrong. And a lot of people who voiced skepticism of the opinions were censored. And it'll the censorship of those individuals by social media companies, we now know on behalf of the government in some cases, allowed a consensus to develop based around the wrong decisions. Uh, when you silence people, you oftentimes risk shaping a false consensus uh, where a majority of people disagree, but they're too scared to say something. Uh, and it, it skews your perceptions of reality. It skews how public policy is shaped. When you believe that a majority of people support X, but actually a majority don't, they're just too scared to speak up. Uh, you design public policy in ways that actually most Americans don't like. And at some point, it results in a backlash. And those backlashes can become increasingly strong to the point of, of near violence if uh, left uncontained. It, it's a dangerous thing to suppress people's speech because it builds frustration. It fosters anxiety about the state of things. It becomes much more destabilizing of our democracy. Uh, the people on the left say, well, there's so much disinformation and misinformation out there. We've got to do something. Well, the something is do better, speak louder, and be more truthful. And doesn't the First Amendment protect disinformation and things that, that that somebody else or the government may think is incorrect? Yeah, it does. Uh, and, and the fact is, it, polling is somewhat scary among 
Gen Zers who think that uh, you should be able to silence wrong information. No, uh, the, the solution to wrong information is not censorship. It's better good information. And the First Amendment does protect bad information. It does protect disinformation. It even protects lying. Um, and it, the way to combat it is, well, when the lies are about an individual who's a private citizen, you sue under defamation. When the lies are about topics in general, you respond with the truth. Um, the problem is that the left used to be dominant in its truth claims because it controlled so much of the media and it controlled the academy. And now you have social media where anyone with a, a cell phone can put their opinion out there and the left doesn't like the competition. So they've labeled a lot of things that are actually true as disinformation and, and they've sought to censor people because they haven't been able to figure out how to compete honestly on a level playing field. Well, and it's it's really one of the, the problems when you allow government to decide what is truth. Right. right. That's I mean, what is what is true or what is disinformation when the government can decide that they can really shut down anyone who disagrees with them? Yeah, absolutely. And and the government using social media companies as proxies for the government uh, doing the same thing. It, it leads us to bad results. It leads us, whether it's in healthcare care policymaking or, or defense policymaking, it leads us down rabbit holes and false trails. Uh, where we wind up spending a lot of money and, and harming a lot of people before we realize, oh, this shouldn't have not have been so. Uh, getting the, the government, I mean, ruled, frankly, by an elite these days who are out of touch with the American people and buy into a bunch of mythologies themselves. There's no business arbitrating truth claims. That's what the free market's for. Yeah. Well, Eric, uh, for those who may not may not know of you, I, I can't imagine there's too many that don't, but for those who don't, uh, how can folks listen to your show, listen to your podcast? I make it really easy. If you got a <laughs> cell phone or any device, if you text the word, my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, text it to 33777, I will send you back my podcast, my live stream, uh, my daily email, all of my social media links. It's just Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. That That is easy. You do make it pretty easy. Uh, by the way, thanks for hosting us. We were down in Atlanta for the gathering. What a great event that was. I, I don't know. How uh, how many years have you been doing the gathering? Gosh, going back to 2009, we, we, we took a break for a couple of years because of COVID, but now we're back at it. And it's just, I got so frustrated with so many of the interviews with the Republican candidates for president. It was all about, what do you think about this thing from Donald Trump as opposed to what do you think about Israel and the border and what are your policies? And so it's become a good way I think as a conservative to get candidates on stage and have to answer questions from a crowd about conservative policy as opposed to the process of running for president. Yeah. Well, again, thanks. Thanks for your great work in, in sponsoring that. And uh, I know Americans for Prosperity is a proud sponsor of it. And I'm sure that we'll do that in, in future years as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, Eric, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, listen, thanks uh, for joining us on this episode of American Potential. And uh, great to have Eric Erickson give us some of his thoughts and his wisdom. Uh, stay tuned for so much going on, so much to be involved in. Liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't take those things for granted. Go out there, defend freedom, defend liberty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.